Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. It's not just me, is it? The news is hard to watch, and it's been like this for a long time. In the last few years, we've lived through a pandemic and a war in Ukraine. Only last week did one of the longest-serving monarchs in history pass away, renewing debates around the UK's colonial legacy. Meanwhile, most of us have our own budgets to worry about, with a cost-of-living crisis on the horizon. Simply put, it's a lot to take in. And all of these historic news events constantly demand our already divided attention. For young people especially, this is draining and results in them selectively avoiding mainstream news brands in particular. So what can be done? How can a legacy news organisation command the attention of a generation of news consumers hungry for serious news, but unsure how much more bad news they can stand? The answer lies in how and where you tell these stories. Here to guide us is Ethar Elkatatni, a newsroom strategist and the newly hired news product strategy lead for Bloomberg. Prior to that, she worked as the Wall Street Journal's young audience editor, and before that, as a senior producer at AJ+. Ethar will be sharing points for helping your newsroom appeal to younger audiences at a time when they need you the most. Stay tuned. Ether, welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you so much for jumping on the show. Jacob, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. It's great to chat. Would you um, share a little known fact um, about yourself with our audience, please? A little known fact. Um, I almost won an apprentice style reality TV show. Really? (laughs) Yeah. I was a (laughs) semi-finalist. Do you have a favorite project that you worked on during that time? I did, actually. Um, I think one of my favorites was really um, trying to create a plan, a sustainable business model for um, an orphanage, a home, so things that were a little bit more donation-funded and how do they actually run and become sustainable because it felt very um, useful to a lot of where I come from, my side of the world. Cool. I bet that was a really great learning experience for you. It was. Let's talk about Gen Z for a second and perhaps how it's different from other generations of news consumers. Quite simply, what do you think they want from the news and how is that different from what we might normally expect from other generations? I think the biggest thing to realize now is how much information they're exposed to. I think the latest data say they're about 30 something percent, 32% of the global population, right? So this isn't like a tiny little group that we're like, oh, well, we still don't need to figure out what they need because you know, within a decade, they'll be the primary um, demographic we'll be tailoring to. So they're saturated with so much information, so much depressing information, let's put that. Um, I feel like when I was a kid, we cared most about getting the information, like we got the news a couple of times a day, and that was it, versus now they have the news all the time. So your challenge really is how to provide them with utility-driven news, news that actually gives them agency, news that actually helps them make decisions and navigate the world around them, and doesn't, you know, depress them and make them think there's no hope in the world, right? Because we need hope to get up in the morning. We need hope to be able to navigate the world. Ethan's point here is an important one. The last Reuters digital news report revealed that nearly half, 46% of people in the UK and 42% of people in the US, selectively avoid the news, which means they're intentionally limiting their exposure to news because of how it makes them feel. Most say they feel worn out by the unrelenting nature of the news agenda. However, distrust towards the news, the fact it leads to arguments and feelings of powerlessness are also factors. 
around a third, particularly those under 35, say it brings down their mood. That ties in well with another paper on young people's relationship with the news, published just this week by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, together with the strategic insight agency Kraft. The paper, called The Kaleidoscope, shows just how complex and varied the Gen Z news audience is in comparison with previous generations by virtue of having grown up with the pros and cons of social media. Pros, a personally curated newsfeed at their fingertips. Cons, exposed and vulnerable to a total barrage of news and information. What's telling is that rather than wholesale news avoidance, young people tend to avoid particularly serious news themes. Brexit, COVID-19, culture wars, politics, death and violence, the Ukraine war, all to safeguard their mental health. This has big implications for mainstream news brands who are perceived as being on the serious end of the news spectrum. They're also very digital savvy. They're on all the platforms. They have very fragmented uh, attention that's going to multiple places. So your challenge is how not only to deliver them the news that helps them navigate the world, but in the mediums that they want, in the platforms that they are, in the times that they are digital, personalized, um, actually uh, aligned with what they believe in, because that's another big thing, which is that they have choice, right? They have spaces where they can go get their news, different places, different people. Um, and you have to be aligned with that. I think we can all relate to that feeling of being inundated by the news right now. But I guess maybe what's different for myself is I remember a time pre-internet, I remember going to get my dad's weekly newspaper, but this is perhaps all they've ever known. So I guess what you're saying is the success of your news content for them lives or dies on how relevant it is to them and how much it speaks to their values, fits into their everyday lives and how much, as you say, utility value it provides to them. And it has to go to them, right? They're not going to come to you. That's, I think, a very also big difference, which is we actively went to the places where we could consume the news. Now their news consumption habits are very different than what now that we are the millennials and the generation and how we consume it. A news transaction works in two directions though. What do you think we can actually expect from Gen Z coming to us, if that makes sense? Um, are we creating content to sell subscriptions, to gain an online following? What's the purpose of the news that we're trying to create for them? I actually think that's a really important question for every news organization to define for themselves, because I feel within the same news organization, you can have different goals for every single kind of content that you produce. You can have news that's just designed to inform if you're like a huge organization, which is actually breaking news, and that'll be the very tiny minority of us. You can be a very niche organization that really, you know, um, covers a specific issue, climate change, abortion rights, something that can become very holistic and representational for them. Stories that center their voices and their experiences is extremely important. So I feel that having that as a base when you're thinking of the content you're producing will help you set those goals. It's very different when you're producing content that's designed to build a community, right? You want them to engage. You want them to answer this survey or this Instagram story, or you want them to splice up the TikTok question that you posted and create, amplify your message and your branding elsewhere. But if you're looking, for example, you want to get subscriptions, that'll also define like the platforms you're on. It'll define how much access you give to that content, right? So being clear on those goals is important because it'll help shape the type of work you do 
what you center, the medium you're on and the platform you're in. And it's totally fine to have multiple goals. I actually think you should have multiple goals because again, just like this generation has a multitude of choice, your content should have also a multitude, a very diversified portfolio of your news products, if you will, to be able to reach those segments differently. I hear that. And one of the things which you spell out really well in your paper is the behavior of Gen Z as well. And I love this point that simplicity, making your content more simple, is not the same as dumbing it down. There's a really fine difference there. Can you expand on that point too and what and why that's important? I actually think it's much harder to be simple. It is much easier to write a 5,000 word story with a 600 word lead and anecdote than it is to be like, well, you have 60 seconds to try and convey not just what the news is, but how it's important, who are the characters in it and what it means for the future, right? And to do it in an engaging way that's aesthetically pleasing, that's specifically a reversion for the platform you're on. I feel like when I graduated school, I only needed to know how to write, right? That was the thing. And then camera work came in and it was very like split up into specific, like you're a reporter, you're a producer, you're a director. Versus now the reporter needs to be able to kind of do everything they need to do. You'll do a podcast or audio and they need to do edit final cut and they need to bring in animation. So similarly, I feel like the content that you're producing to Gen Z is no longer just tackling one aspect of journalism. You're bringing together all of the things. You're bringing together design, you're bringing investigation, you're bringing reporting, you're bringing um, platform tailored content, and you have to bring in um, engagement and community centered thinking. So splicing the content, I feel is a really good way to think of stories living in multiple levels It's not just like, well, I'm producing one story and that one story will touch on everything because you also have to think of they're not accessing your content in a one main sit down experience. They're not sitting there being like, all right, let me watch this one 20 minute documentary, you know, that'll give me the whole thing of the story. They're constantly exposed to the story throughout the day, throughout the week. So thinking of your content as, yes, it's shorter, it's simpler but think of it as building off of each other, right? Your article on this page should lead into a video here. There should be discoverability. There should be a kind of navigational tree over the bite size or the consumption habit that will fit in throughout their day and throughout their lives. And each one builds on the other. That's really smart. So trying to make your content have as much mileage as possible. And a long tail, right? Let's say they're following a specific character or a specific location or a specific story. Gen Z, one thing about them also is they very much follow personalities, right? Or creators. It's less so about, you know, this news organization. It's also about, well, this reporter really covers this issue, you know, really strongly. Let's, you know, see what they're doing. So they follow that person and follow their um, trajectory throughout the story. Which is a departure from what we might traditionally expect being so headline orientated, you know, event first. It really does feel personal first storytelling quite a big pivot from the traditional especially for legacy organizations right that's a huge thing they struggle with where a lot of these places would always be like well the reporter should never be part of the story right or the reporters brand themselves should never be part of that and how does that fit in now with a generation that is very comfortable following individuals versus news organizations and even trust to go back to that larger one actually sometimes skews more heavily towards individuals rather than the news organizations with that trust in news, you know, really decreasing over the last couple of years. When it comes to huge, seismic and often overwhelming news stories, your Gen Z audience needs a way to relate to events which 
otherwise might feel beyond reach or relevance for them. It's just like the kaleidoscope paper laid out when it comes to what young audiences like and don't like about the mainstream media. They like to have verified information and access to key sources. They're not a fan of repetitive and scaremongering narratives, quote, tonally boring news delivery, and a lack of familiar faces on the screen. What that means in practice, for example, is instead of interviewing a bunch of experts or talking heads like a 24-7 TV news channel might do, your brand could drip-feed story updates via Instagram Reels from a relatable fellow Gen Z journalist, and that should focus on how it affects this audience in particular and making people like us the focus. As Ethar recently published in a paper on creating news for young audiences, first-person storytelling is one of the most powerful ways to appeal to Gen Z. It's why the likes of Scene, formerly Hashtag Our Stories, who empower citizens around the world to tell their own stories, has seen so much success. As Ethar wrote, Scene's stories understand that their audience is young with lots to learn. They aim for simple, they avoid jargon, speak colloquially, and produce lots of explainers and listicles. So where do we even start? Ethar tells me more about the reservations legacy organisations have about this approach and how to slowly turn that ship around. It begins with hiring in the mould of who you seek to appeal to. Well, I always advocate for making sure you're hiring Gen Z in your in your actual newsrooms, right? So that they're the ones who are telling those stories. So they see people who look like them. Um, and that obviously includes the entire spectrum of making sure your staff is diverse, et cetera, et cetera. But also when you have younger reporters, you have to be much more conscious. One of the reasons legacy organizations only would have, you know, um, in terms of experience, people who've done this for many, many years, especially when it's live or on camera, you have to train, you have to give a lot of workshops. I've hired lots and lots of people who are fresh out of school. So a lot of like, obviously they've done the school working and being on TV, but making sure, you know, what they're sharing on their social platforms, um, when they're producing content that isn't potentially seen by an editor, like let's say they did a story for your video channel, but then they went and cut up a different thing on TikTok for their personal thing that blurring of who's editing the work, fact-checking the work, especially when your audience doesn't have a way to actually make sure of that, right? When you're following BBC or you're following et cetera, you already know that's being done. Um, so I, I think that's one of the hesitancies that comes about and then potentially that the person's own beliefs filter through, which I feel is one thing Gen Z really responds to, right? They want to feel like they're, beliefs, missions, values are reflected in the organizations that they are consuming content for. But that's a problem legacy organizations have, or even a lot of news organizations, which is, well, how do we have that mission driven or those values when we are objective and fair and middle of the road, and we want to make sure we're not skewing or, or slanted towards. And that's a really hard line to balance, right? It's very clear cut when it comes to something big like oh, we're not going to feature people who believe the earth is flat, right? Versus issues that are a lot more nuanced. And how do you show sides of the stories and still be leaning towards one of them? And that one, everyone will have their own way of deciding where they fall in that spectrum. Based on the people you spoke to, though, how have they balanced that or made these two kind of worlds coexist? Is there a clear way from what you can see how they've either managed to get buy-in or they've managed to overcome that hurdle? What's clear? Honestly, it differs wildly. Um, I feel the one that shows the quickest results fastest is being siloed within an organization, which is a group of people just be like, all right, we're just going to build something really small within our two to three, create new workflows, et cetera. 
because that's the easiest one, right? Building something from scratch is always easier than trying to move a very big ship and try and be like, yeah, that's very true. Let's do this. Yep. Um, it's easier, um, especially if you're already equipped with resources, right? So a significant part of my experience came from AJ plus, which is digital brainchild. We had a lot of resources and a lot of, uh, from our mother organization, but we built it completely new, right? So that allowed things to be a lot faster. Um, but then there are other organizations I've talked to, which take a more specific approach. They decide like, all right, we're going to build a video strategy or a newsletter, right? Rather than trying to be like, we're going to change everything across the board. Um, and one thing to keep in mind is the fear of alienating your core reader, right? Sometimes that happens, which is how do we serve multiple audiences? Is it through multiple different formats? So like on this medium is for this audience and this medium for this audience. There's no one formula that works for everyone, but when you know your organization, it'll be a little bit easier to spot the people on each team. Like there's this one person in design who's always super creative. He designs a game or there's the, there's this one producer who's really fast and really experienced on Twitch or whatever. And you create these multifunctional teams that are have multiple stakeholders. I think that's a very solid way to get buy-in, which to show that how this would work across multiple teams, because it doesn't work with just one individual or two individuals. You need people who have that diversity of skill sets to come on board. I feel like the silo approach is probably not the one news organizations would prefer to do. They'd rather have a cohesive brand strategy and mm -hmm. and to make it work across the platform. You know, so I, I take from your answer there, it's about finding specific formats or specific um, verticals perhaps, which can help shoehorn some of that strategy in. I would also say that to think small is totally fine in the beginning, right? Let's say you're a news organization, which is really well known for one of the big case studies I use is chemical and engineering news, right? You're already a very niche organization to find the topics that you already know will resonate with your audience, right? Like give yourself the best chance of success by choosing the issue or the medium, the one thing about your organization that you know will most appeal to Gen Z and start from there. Yes, I would always advocate if you can get um, your whole organization on board, much better than building small and then trying to replicate that within the wider newsroom, right? Having it be across the board from the get-go and everybody on the same page. And one way to do that is to start small, is just to be like on this one topic where we already have expertise. I already have a reporter on mortgages who does that really well. Let's find out how we can do that for a generation who might never own a home and, you know, maybe create this little series on Snap or whatever that will talk them through what they would do. So to take that expertise and scale it laterally into different kinds of coverage, whether it's content, medium, platform, aesthetic for that generation, that's a good way to start. There is little doubt that social media is the driving force for news consumption amongst young audiences. 39% of 18 to 24s get their news from social media, according to the last Reuters Digital News report, and that's five percentage points more than those who get their news from websites and apps. TV, radio and print do not come anywhere close. It's hardly surprising for a digital native generation. In addition to getting most of their news on social platforms, the other thing to keep in mind when it comes to Gen Z news consumers is that they do not consciously seek out news or make active brand decisions. They're not as picky about where the news comes from compared to previous generations, so long as it meets their needs and expectations. This means that for news organisations of any size, you need to be immediately relevant, interesting and on tone whenever the algorithms decide to put you in front of these audiences regardless of the platform. 
and video is the no-brainer of where to start. Video is the medium that they are existing in for the majority of their screen time, their information consumption habits. That's not to say, just to be clear, that other mediums aren't. It's the richest medium for them that they're used to and that they can consume a lot of information in. It also gives you a way to add a lot of nuance and a lot more color um, to your stories. And one thing which I think is important is in this last few years, it's become no longer so important to be so polished. I feel like when we first began in video in like 2013 through 2016, we were all competing as me, like how can we produce the most beautiful video, the most beautiful editing. And that's almost scaled back. COVID also, we've gone back to Skype interviews and Zoom calls, you know, like the expectations of your video having to be excellent has kind of, we've gone back a little bit more to like raw or more nitty gritty kind of content. So it's okay not to have incredible video as long as you have video that is, you know, whoever you're talking to talks directly to the screen, not that traditional rule of thirds. As long as you can kind of adhere a little bit to the new rules of video production, then you'll be fine. And you can do that on your iPhone. You can do that on your Android. You don't need the equipment, right? Because I feel like that's one of the barriers to entry, which is like, oh no, this is so complicated. How can we do this? We need to hire a video editor. We need to hire a producer. We need to hire a sound engineer. And the reality is you don't. You can literally do this on your phone and it'll work equally well as the people who have the beautiful cameras and, you know, the four people teams. I think you're right. A few points on that. I'd say, I mean, to the visual aesthetic and look at the platforms that they use, like TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, you bring up that platform, you're greeted with video almost instantly. It is very much that's there every day. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, you know, that tolerance for lower quality, you see actually like this TikTok influence where it's people play on that a little bit and they don't they sometimes break the rules of of normal standard video editing and the platforms that the gen z most use are youtube and tiktok so i think youtube youtube as well how dare how dare i forget youtube of course like 90 more than 90 percent use youtube to consume video tiktok's more than 65 percent instagram more than 60 and then obviously facebook is now in the 30s range probably um because that's not a platform that they're on frequently anymore some golden rules as it were for video, what would you say? Honestly, the first thing I would say for a video, which is your visuals, what are you showing me in the video? Like I used to have something called a five second rule for my producers. And then I shifted that to the three second rule. The only thing I would say, if I were to say one thing, it would be like your first shot. What is your first shot? What are you showing me? First of all, like that is the absolute most critical part of your video. Um, I became such a horrible editor in like cutting, 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 cutting. There's so much superfluous stuff in there that doesn't need to be there. Um, think of sound off. Think of, that most people watch it with sound off. So don't put so much work into like this music or this narrative arc. Caption it. That needs to be captioned. Um, if you have text on screen, it needs to be readable. It needs to be um, clear enough. Watch it on your mobile. Think of mobile first, right? Don't just do on your big... PC screen or whatever, actually play it on phone and see how it plays. Um, don't duplicate it. What works on TV doesn't work on digital first, right? So it depends on where this video is being consumed also because that changes things, right? If you're creating it for a sit down Netflix 20 minute experience versus no, I'm creating it to live within their TikTok stream um, and to be tailored to that platform. It has to be tailored specifically if it's 16 by nine or you know, you're doing it a square format Think of where it exists um, and either shoot it if you're lucky, if you can start from there, the shooting, but if not, then the editing for that platform. Love all of that. 
when it comes to formats, is it all about video or do the other formats still matter? What, what, shouldn't, what shouldn't we neglect? It's choosing what you can do that is the challenge, right? As an organization, as what resources you have, what funding you have, what skills of the reporters you have. Um, there are obviously some things which we talked about, like video being more important, but I know of so many who listen to podcasts, right? Like, and that consumption habit has changed significantly in the last few years. And they also read and Gen Z also pays for news. So there's a lot of things that are still, even if not stereotypical, but are assumptions. They're assumptions about how this is the only way they would consume. Um, so I'd say don't try and pigeonhole yourself into like one specific thing, be like, oh my God, they only do video, so I'm only gonna do video. No, think of what your skill sets are as an organization. What's your unique selling proposition, right? And that's one of the challenges, which is because you're not just competing, like we said, with news organizations, you're competing with individual news creators. You're competing with some random guy who suddenly found something that really resonated and now has a million followers and people are watching him. So don't think of the noise, think of what you do well have the story dictate what the output should look like, right? Some stories are inherently visual. Some stories are not. They're more uh, data oriented and they need other things. So your story should dictate the format, not, you know, well, I make, I have to have a video, so I will do a video even if I have absolutely nothing that works for a video. Yeah, make a decision based on the story itself and give it the proper treatment from there. I think that's pretty wise advice. When it, when it comes to social media, um, what do you think are some of the misunderstandings when it comes to legacy news organizations, social media strategy, and, and perhaps how do you rewire those to be a little bit more fine-tuned for a Gen Z audience? One of the things that I think a lot of organizations, legacy organizations, when they start a social strategy is they assume that they can just put whatever content they've produced elsewhere onto that platform without actually creating content specifically for that platform, Right which is they're like, oh, well, we have this story. Let's just dump a picture and write a long caption. Um, not thinking of their publishing times, right? When are they publishing? What time are they publishing? Because your uh, people who are consuming it also get used to um, where you are. One example that I came across just recently was, um, it's actually a German uh, publication on TikTok. Obviously, I'm going to butcher their name, uh, Funke Zentralization. And one thing they grew their following significantly in a year is that they publish the same formats at the same times and in the same way for their audience. And that I feel is um, a really important thing to do, which is their expectations of what they would be getting on those platforms to be consistent, right? So think of your thumbnails, think of the autoplay, think of your captions to be more holistic in thinking of things beyond just the content itself, because there's so many things that come into play when we think of off-platform production that we wouldn't necessarily think of for a magazine or newspaper or TV. What do you mean on that last point? Sorry. Like I said, so for example, when you think of YouTube, right, your publishing time is important, your keywords, your headlines, your thumbnail, right? And those are all things that you don't necessarily, if you're in a broadcast TV show and you're running, you're running a show, because those are also, they influence discoverability, they influence recommendations, they influence the alerts, you know, your users used to like on Monday morning, you drop the show and then they join in here. So that your same time, the place, the format, and these also uh, build engagement habits, traffic referrals, right? Things like that. Yeah, for sure. YouTube algorithms especially love all of that kind of stuff. So um, really good advice. You know, when it comes to some of the thought leaders that you've interviewed as part of this paper, Ether, what are some of the thought leaders doing right in this space when it comes to actually leading their organizations? What's very unique to those their success? 
that you might not find elsewhere. Before I started this new role, consulting with newsroom organizations, which basically involved everything from small things like we want to build a newsletter to a larger like we need to create a video strategy. And one thing across the board, regardless of how small, how big, how much money, how little money these organizations have is everybody struggling with how do we engage our audiences? How do we build them? And also, how do we make money? Right. And one thing I've noticed both in working with them and interviewing for them this paper is that the thing that predicts success a lot is the willingness to experiment and the willingness to fail. Because this is such a fast changing industry. You know, TikTok didn't even exist two years ago, right? And now we talk about it so much. Like when I started this research, it, it literally was brand new still in like 2019. Um, so having to quickly adapt and be very responsive to those changes is, is critical. People who are willing to try small, right? Not be like, well, we're going to put all our money into just this one strategy. Risk then if it fails, then you're, you're in deep poo-poo. Um, so people who are willing to experiment, they're willing to have even their producers sit for two hours. One of the most successful shows I worked on literally came from a producer who was like, can you just give me like two hours a day to just play around with, he called it selfie journalism, right? And then he went on to win James Beard Award. Like it comes from giving your producers the space. Um, when you work in news, we're very like, I need X amount of stories. We're used to like rundowns and productivity and having this and just giving your producer space to just experiment and play stuff. So I feel people who are willing to do that, to give their producers the time to hire, to listen to them, right? There's still very sometimes dismissive attitude, I feel, in legacy organizations to respect, you know, well, this reporter has been here for 25 years. So obviously they have the gravitas and experience and less so like, oh, well, this person's only a year out of school. They might not have the journalism chops yet, but they do have other skill sets that you should try and utilize. I've also seen people who partner, so very young, new reporters with reporters who have more experience and letting them kind of learn from each other and experiment together. Um, another thing is really going, being very selective with what they want to do, not trying to do everything, not being like, yes, I'm going to be on six platforms by the end of the year. And that's our goal to be very intentional in the platform that they choose or the kind of work they want to do and invest resources into that because you'll never be on all the things and you'll never succeed. If you try and do that, you'll just get lost. There's a lot of wisdom that you've just thrown at me right there, Ethan. I just want to pick up on a, a couple of little things. I think in 2019, people did have their reservations about TikTok, maybe thought it was a, a flash in the pan, it might not last, they could have been dismissive. So it feels very significant to give someone the breathing room to say, let me just have two hours to play with this platform, when they may have had that reservations. You know, so I guess the extension of that is, if these people are, these specialists are saying this, and this is something that's bubbling, we need to give this a bit of attention. It's worth listening to what they have to say and worth giving them resources, because there could be another TikTok around the corner for all we know. Yeah, that's fair. And again, you don't need to throw everything at it um, to just have an open mind, right? Not be immediately be like, oh, no, this, how on earth will we do? Remember Vine? Mm -hmm. There was a time where I experimented with like six seconds. All right. And that just kind of disappeared, but it was fine. We still experimented. We still tried some things. And especially since a lot of these things are very low investment, right? It's not the same as starting a new broadcast show or things like that. And your audience will respond to it. One way, which is also to bring them in. We didn't mention this a lot, but how important it is for this generation to bring them into your stories. 100%. It's 
again, journalism is not two way, is not one way anymore. It's not just, you know, being like, we know best and we'll share. Ask them, ask them what they want to see. Ask them what stories you've missed. Ask them how you can tell the story better, right? What angles you've missed. And you would be amazed at how much insight, input, feedback that will help shape your content, your formatting, your strategies that will be helpful. Why not utilize that if you can? It doesn't have to be pristine from day one, does it? I think that's the point. No, not at all. And in fact, Gen Z will also respond to seeing you change and develop and iterate, right? They respond to you showing them behind the scenes, what worked, what didn't work. Here's how we're getting better. Here's how we listened and how we're changing. They respond to that, the authenticity part of that, right? And the transparency. Many congratulations and wishing you the best in your new role, Ethan. Thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. It's been a real, real treat to speak to you. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. So many useful insights, it's hard to know where to start. First and foremost, you cannot be what you cannot see. Cliché as it is, it's true. Building Gen Z into your ranks and giving them a say, as well as space to experiment and the grace to fail, is your starting point to appealing to this generation. Start small, pivot around a vertical you do well, or a small team with the right building blocks, or a social media channel that has all the right features to help you meet your goals, whatever those are. But most of all, do all of this in the pursuit of earning Gen Z trust and attention. A tough call at a time when both are fragmented. Concentrate on value over scale and be prepared to break some conventions in the process. And let us know how you get on. I'm on jacob at journalism.co.uk. I'd love to hear about stories or topics you'd like us to cover on the show, any great guests you have in mind, or any thoughts on today's episode. We're also on Twitter. You can send me a message at jpgjournalism or the wider team at journalism.co.uk at journalismnews. If you like what you heard, you can search and subscribe to the journalism.co.uk podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And that way, you won't miss our next exciting episode. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.